Well, hello, everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine, and this is your Rattlecast for Tuesday, October 29th. Hope you're having a nice evening. We're going to have another great show for you, as always. We have um, Francesca Bell, who I'm going to give a call to in just a little bit. Uh, We're going to do something a little bit differently today, Um, and probably moving forward, I've heard from some feedback that um, the length of the show is a little bit long for the podcast version. So I think what we're going to do from now on maybe is have a hard break at the end of our guest and then um, do the open mic portion, but only on video. So it's going to be on YouTube and Facebook, but not on the audio podcast on iTunes and um, Stitcher and all that stuff. So it'll be a shorter one-hour podcast version because most people I hear listen to these in their car. And... um, When you listen in your car, you don't really have that long of a commute where you want a 90-minute podcast. So um, so that was the feedback we've gotten. I'm listening and trying to improve the show as we go, and I think that's something we're going to try to do. And then that also allows us to not worry so much about, um, you know, people repeating on the open mic and how long it goes and all that kind of stuff. So I think that'll be a good way to to, uh, set up the show from now on. Now, um, Francesca, well, hopefully she'll be able to join us. Um, she does live in Northern California. I interviewed her for Rattle Number 56 um, a couple years ago, and uh, she lives sort of, I think, if I have my geography right, at the south end of that Napa Valley. And last I heard, her power was out, but she has a generator, and she wanted to do the show anyway. So she's going to uh, be joining us in just a little bit. I, have, um, I live up in the mountains of Southern California, and we have the same kind of fire problems. We... Um, had to evacuate for almost two weeks a couple years ago for the blue cut fire. And uh, even right now, I hear there's a fire in the pass below us that, fortunately, the wind's uh, blowing it in the other direction. But um, that's something we always experience this time of year. And I thought I would start out the show today with um, some Poets Respond poems um, that we've published over the years uh, having to do with the fires. So um, let's turn back the clock first of all, to August 7th, 2018. And here is a poem by Amy Miller called To the Firefighters Sleeping in the Yard. And um, Amy Miller uh, lives in Southern Oregon and writes at Writer's Island, writers-island.blogspot.com, so you can find her there. Her most recent book is The Trouble with New England Girls from Concrete Wolf Press. And here she is writing about the firefighters sleeping in the yard to the firefighters sleeping in the yard statistically your mothers know those hot shot tragedies hardly ever happen they worry more for your lungs your feet 26 bones of curled arboreal they once could hold they worry what you're eating warm burritos wrapped in foil handed to you by a shy two-year-old girl. And of course, they dream of horses running, a cat taking refuge under a car that flashes, boils, melts. They dream of the strange tornadoes birthing, devouring, throwing metal and glass, dream of the houses they raised you in, the thin roofs peeling up how the smoke whistles and crackles with its particles that were everything, everyone it took, how it snows its flecks of everything, everyone, down like night, like sleep. Statistically, one grown child looks much like another, sooty, spent, a war-stained face turned away. This infuriates mothers, not knowing if you're theirs while they scratch at the screen, trying to blow up some twice-removed photo taken by a man whose house you saved with your axes that slumber beside you and a single hose stretched to the limit, now slack. But any mother, anyone, can recognize this, the way you curl against the ground while catastrophe shrieks on, how you all of us have to lay down your weapons just for an hour and sink into that dark old well of refuge, one hand between your knees. So that was Amy Miller with um, 
uh, to the firefighters sleeping in the yard. And thanks so much for that, Amy. And thanks to all the firefighters uh, sleeping in the yards tonight and saving um, all of our houses. I think our town probably would burn down about once every 10 years if it weren't for um, the brave and amazing people who um, make those containment lines and and do all the airdrops and uh, save us every time. Thank you so much. Um, Now let's move to another poem. This is uh, a month before that. This was July 8th, 2018. And... uh, this is Ruth Bavetta, her poem, Heat, a shorter one. And um, Ruth lives down here in San Clemente, and uh, her most recent book is Fugitive Pigment. She's a, both a poet and a um, visual artist, a painter. Um, and here is Heat by Ruth Bavetta. Heat. And the sun said, let there be fire. And there was fire. And the fire said, let there be wind. And the wind was throbbing, and the beasts of the flames pulled taut over the hills, said naught to the chaparral, and nilled to the coyote. And the coyote ran, and the rabbits ran, and the deer and the rattlesnake and the quail ran. And the wind sprang from its kill, and tongue licked the eaves, and the rafters, and the roof. And the smoke was air, and the air was smoke. The air was our bodies. It was the shadows against the sky. And once again, that was Ruth Bavetta from San Clemente, California, um, giving you a sense for all the people who uh, don't live on the West Coast, the kind of atmosphere that we're dealing with during these fires and in this time of year, every year. Um, it's, it's like nothing you've ever experienced if you've never experienced it before. And um, let's see, what else do we have here? So here is uh, another part. I think we'll do one more. And this is November 2018. This is uh, Caitlin Gildrian. These violent delights have violent ends, which, of course, is a quote um, used prominently in, um, oh, what's that show called? Um, the one about the robots in the, uh, the West World. That's the show. Um, and... Um, this was the fire that uh, burned down the set of Westworld last November. I should say Caitlin uh, Gildrian uh, lives in Vermont and tweets uh, at uh, cattail underscore Caitlin. Uh, and you can find her online at cattail creative. That's just how it spells cattailcreative.com. So check her out. But here she is, Caitlin Gildrian. These violent delights have violent ends. I don't want to write about California. I don't want to look. Did you know that there were two new litters of mountain lions in the Santa Monica Mountains? A mama can only carry one at a time. I don't know why that's the thing that breaks me. It's the world that breaks me. We've broken the world. Just past the tweet that tells me about the kittens is a thread about Romeo and Juliet, the Claire and Leo movie version, and that is what I click through. How I loved that movie, the fish tank, the kissing. I wanted to live in a world like that, a world like this world, except slant. Better lighting, better language. How you can understand it best by not listening too closely. I think too much. All the fish in that tank scooped probably from the sea. How the sea is failing. I wanted to love someone until they would die for me. I wanted to be the one they would choose to carry out of the burning world. When the fish stocks fail, when the Amazon tips past the point for which it can compensate with the meager reforestation it is allowed. There should be nicer language for this in a poem. I'm sorry. I just keep thinking of Juliet, who thought the sea was infinite and so a good metaphor for love. But we're determined to find the bottom of any bounty. They thought this continent was boundless too, and scraped it clean to prove themselves it's better. They. 
Did you see that storm of smoke utterly apocalyptic over the highway? It makes a person say, God, God, lift me by the scruff or the throat, maybe. All of us, maybe. Shake hard. Be rough with love. Yeah, so that was uh, Caitlin Gildrian reading These Violent Delights Have Violent Ends. Um, I thought those were three of, literally three of the best Poets Respond poems we published all of last year, and they all happen to be about fires. And there's something uh, very poetic and terrifying <laughs> at the same time about about fire season. Um, okay, so we have three minutes until we uh, call up Francesca Bell. Um, if you... Uh, would like to join the open mic after we're done with her in about an hour from now. Uh, all you have to do is have scap or Skype open on your uh, phone or computer or whatever you're listening on, and uh, send me a message through Skype to Rattle Poetry, all one word, and we will. Uh, I'll reply at some point when I can, when I have a second free, and uh, we'll let you know that I have you uh, lined up, and then I'll give you a call when the time is right. We also have uh, three poets, uh, or is it four? Four poets lined up at the uh, the pre-recorded open mics. If you'd like to pre-record an open mic, uh, if you're watching this later and can't join us live, you can do that at rattle.com slash rattlecast, and uh, you'll see instructions. You just use submittable and send uh, audio and uh, the text of the poem so I can put it on screen. Today we have lined up Stephen Roberts, James Snay, Elizabeth S. Wolf, and... Uh, Melinda Jane, also known as the Poet MJ. So we have uh, four open mics and as many Skype open mics as we can find. Uh, before we start, I should say, Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry and uh, unaffiliated with any other organization. Rattle's been publishing out of California since 1995 uh, for your pleasure and our love of poetry. Uh, we don't ask for donations. All we ask is that you... Uh, you know, share our poems that we publish and help spread the word and, and spread poetry around the internet and around the world. Um, pass out your uh, issues of Rattle and um, share this podcast. Click the like button and subscribe. Tell all your friends to subscribe. And um, that's what to do if you enjoy this. Um, let's see, it's 5.59. So I'm going to throw up the uh, splash screen and we will put on the bumper music and... Um, We'll call up uh, Francesca, and I'll be right back. Yeah, so I have uh, Francesca Bell on the line. Uh, she's going to join us, and, and somehow she has power. It's kind of amazing from, from Northern California. Um, let me read her bio really quick. Fre Francesca Bell was born in Spokane, Washington, into a family with deep, hard, scrabble roots in the Northwest. Her poems and translations appear in many magazines, including Elle, Mid-American Review, New Ohio Review, and lots of others, um, including a whole bunch of issues of Rattle. I, I forgot to count beforehand, but maybe um, seven or something like that. We also interviewed her in Rattle number 56. Um, it's one of my favorite interviews. I went up to her house in, uh, in Northern California to uh, interview her then. Um, and her book, which just came out, uh, let me get it on screen, is um, Bright Stain with this beautiful, beautiful cover. Uh, I think this is one, probably the, the most gorgeous book I have uh, seen. It's a beautiful book cover. I should maybe uh, turn down the light a little bit so you can see better. But um, let me read one of the blurbs, too. This is from David St. John. He says, How deeply gratifying to see Francesca Bell's electric, erotic, and completely ravishing debut collection, Bright Stain. At last in the world. For the past 10 years, she has been writing some of the most charged, subtle, and yet devastating poems in American poetry. Many of these dramatic vignettes are laced with a rare sexual candor and a whip-smart emotional intelligence. Bright Stain is one of the many darkly elegant and luminous books of recent years. It is, in all ways, truly a wonder. And that was David St. John talking about Bright Stain. And uh, here she is, our guest today. Francesca, Hello. Francesca Bell. Hi, Francesca. Hey. How you doing? Uh, I'm doing great. Our power just came on. Oh, did it just come on? Oh, that's great to hear. Um, 
the whole uh you know cutting out the power thing is kind of scary <laughs> i'm not looking I, forward I to that the power is scarier yeah yeah that's true that's true um so how is it there is the as the winds dying down and um is it all smoky or are you how are you doing you know we're doing fine um the last two years we've had a lot more smoke than mm-hmm. this year yeah this year the winds have been carrying the smoke right out over the ocean mm-hmm and so it just hasn't been as bad. Oh, that's, that's good to know. The last, two, the last two fire seasons before this one were just horrendous. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, couldn't, you couldn't see anything. We couldn't go outside at all. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's good to hear. It's not, not too bad. And are they uh, starting to get it contained, or is it still out of control? Uh, you know, I, the last I heard it was only 15% contained, mm-hmm. and we're expecting more wind tonight. Yeah, yeah, that's what I heard. Yeah. Um, uh, they, hope to ha- they hope to have it contained by the 7th of November. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it takes a while. That's for sure. Yeah. You, you can't put them out. Um, so, so your book, uh, Bright Stain, which I just read this afternoon, it's it's a wonderful book. Um, and and I sort of already knew that because we published so many of your poems. Um, <laughs> yeah, there are a lot of poems <laughs> in here. Well, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, you're one of our favorite poets, and always have been. Um, I think, and in, in the interview that we did, I mentioned this. Um, but the first one, the first um, voice message, I think it was that I ever received at Rattle was uh, somebody calling after seeing your poem, um, um, Narrow Openings, in uh, rattle number 22. And they said, why can't I find Francesca Bell's book? Does she write under a pen name or something, too? And I, <laughs> and I, had to say, so I, I, call, I emailed you, I think, and asked, like, hey, do you have a book or anything? Where's your book? No, but people want to find it. And uh, that was 2004. And um, so it's great to finally have uh, this book out, and such a beautiful book by Red Hen Press. Um, how was how the... Um, Experience, man, of, of being a um, published author now, or, you know, a book author. You know, it's great. It really, it's funny. Uh, you may have found this yourself, that you really, you work a long time toward a book. And it took me five years to get my book accepted. And, and then you get the book accepted. And I was elated. And then I noticed that the rest of my life was still the same. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, and so I think that there's an element mm-hmm. to that with everything in humanity that yeah, we yeah. our hopes on things and then we we achieve them or or receive them and or you know whatever it, whatever it is the thing you know mm-hmm. it's an or something we could receive and then we find that it's you know i was i'm still overjoyed but my life is not really very different mm-hmm. yeah yeah i know exactly how you feel <laughs> yeah and i mean it's still it's extremely gratifying mm-hmm. um, when my when that poem came out in rattle I had just started sending my work out about a year before that, and I got all rejections for about a year, and then I got the acceptance from Rattle. So I was really mm-hmm. very far from having a book ready. Mm-hmm. I was just starting out. Well, it didn't seem like it, and, and that's one of the things you really notice in this book, actually, reading through, because I know personally that it's at least you know 15 years of poems, and um, you know there's no like sense that the earlier poems aren't as strong as the later poems. It's, it's such a continuously strong book throughout the whole um, the whole collection. Um, so that's kind of neat to see. Because I mean, I don't want to say you haven't had any growth, but you kind of like started out great already, so uh, you didn't have to. <laughs> um, do you, Do you want to read a couple poems to start out? And um... yes, I actually want to start with a poem um, that has some fire in it. Oh, okay. Um, um, in the fire business here. Yeah, yeah, definitely. We're yeah. in Southern California too. Um, do you? Uh, is it in the book? It is. If it any, is. anything that's in the book, say the page number, and I'll put it on the screen so people can read along at home. Okay, it's page ninety-four. Okay. And just tell me when you're ready. I'm I'm good to go. Go ahead. Okay. Okay. On the way to Chevron, my father tries to save my life. He turns to me while I'm driving says, there's something I should tell you. Says, truth is, I've worried it could happen to you. Says, women have been burned clear to death. Says, I know it's weird, but I wanted you to know. Then he pauses, embarrassed. And his pause is room enough for me to think, holy shit, and self-immolation. To wonder if he senses, after all, how I verge on combustion. The smolder I fight to keep from flaring up and engulfing me daily in the laundry room and kitchen, narrow confinement of the bathroom. 
my washer and dryer spinning years of not done, not done, not done. Dinners no one likes bubble over on the stove and the toilet is bolted so close to the wall. The only way to get it clean is on my knees. Some days I rest there like a sick person, head lolling, hair in my face, and listen while my children trash the house. Glad the mirror cannot find me, a controlled burn of a woman where a raging goddamn wildfire might have been. I stop the car and he starts again. My father says, you've got to stay outside while you pump your gas. Says, you sit back down, you're building up static. Says, Sparkle, jump right down the gas tank and light you up. Says, touch something before the nozzle. Discharge your spark. Promise me, he says, you'll do it every time. Later, walking room to room to watch my family sleep, I stand at each bedside in the dark, not knowing where it's safe to put my hands. Well, thanks, Francesca. Um, do you do you have uh, earbuds with you or headphones? You, could... you know what they? I I have hearing aids. Uh, and I oh, can't do it all to work. That's okay. Don't don't worry about that at all. Um, there's just that little. There's like a noise cancellation kind of software, and there's that little tiny echo. But it's okay. No, it's totally yeah, fine. Yeah, I'm sorry. I tried to make it work, and I thought it was more important mm-hmm. that I be able to hear. Oh yeah, yeah, it definitely <laughs> is. So don't don't worry about that at all. Um, Okay, so, uh, yeah, so do you want to read a couple more? I'm sure. I'll read a couple more parenting poems, since that's a parenting poem. Um, I always tell people about that poem that I'm a housewife, and um, even though no one ever asks what it's like to be a housewife, (laughs) I've written a poem to tell you all. (laughs) Uh, And so these are a couple of poems about parenting. In which page? Oh, I'm sorry. I already forgot those instructions. 53. Okay, thanks. Every two hours, the letdown burns. By the time I uncover my breast, T-shirt, bra, nursing pad, the baby is at full cry. It's wide open wailing like a kettle at hard boil, overroiling at scream. The sound is a pulled trigger, spraying milk everywhere. The duvet will sour my shirt stain. In this circuit, I'm neither detonator nor what absorbs the charge. I'm the casing left behind, the part blown empty. And then um, one thing, I imagine you have found this about parenting too, uh, Tim, that I have noticed that while parenting, I'm always watching for what is the the problem I should be solving. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, I'm very often solving the wrong problem. And then things come up that I didn't even know that I should be worried about. And um, this is a poem that, um, that kind of touches on that. Flailing, oh, I'm sorry, page 64. Flailing, not flailing. I've heard the drowning are normally silent often still. Some succumb at home, dry, hours later. What do lifeguards watch for? Blinking back sun, bored. Children sink and bob, sink again. The pool closes its clear door over them. Who can say who's failing, who's having fun? What face distressed wears beneath the water? I obviously have a deep-seated terror of drowning. That <laughs> <laughs> yeah. found its way into my work at mm-hmm. last. Um, so I say that we have a full house on the old chat. So a lot of people are saying hi. So Connie Post is here and uh, Kevin hey, LeMaster, Kim, Kim oh, Tedro, Eric Campbell, a whole bunch of people. Uh, if, you, if you have any... Uh, Questions for, for Francesca Bell, you want me to pass along, just let me know. I'm, I'm watching the chat. So, um, um, yeah, so, so let me know if you have any questions. Um, so, so, Francesca, this book, um, 
I was looking back at uh, the interview we did, and you called this, um, you said the book was about the body, sex, violence, and God, everything polite people don't talk about. Yeah. <laughs> um, so so what, um, what draws you to the things that people don't want to talk about? Because there's a really interesting way that I feel like um, taboo is almost central to poetry, um, because it's sort of like... What we're doing when we're writing is that we're um, sort of mapping a landscape that hasn't been fully explored yet. And so yeah. the things that we don't fully talk about seem like um, what really the substance of poetry is. Like people a lot of times will say, why is there so much uh, sex and death in your issues of rattle? <laughs> is it because that's the, that's the stuff that we don't talk about. At least, you know, we don't talk about it honestly. And so that's why uh, poetry has a function. So is that is that how you think of it? Or, um, you know, why do, why, do you, why are you drawn to these topics? But I'm not really sure why I'm drawn to the topics. Um, I think that there's an element. I, I'm not sure if anybody, I, I don't feel I really control fully what I'm drawn to write about. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't know if other people have better control over themselves than I do. Um, but I feel that I tend to write about the things that fascinate me or obsess me. And um, I, I notice I write a lot about badness. And um, the you know people doing bad things or thinking about bad things, and um, I do think that's something that has interested me since I was a girl. And I've I've wondered I have sort of a colorful family. Uh, I think my parents are also watching, so I, I promise I'm not going to embarrass anyone directly. Um, but you know we have um, you know multiple people in my family who've um, served time in prison. Um, we have. A person who committed murder in my family, a person who attempted to commit murder, a couple of prostitutes. And um, and I think that from the time I was a little girl, I was fascinated by the very thin line between those of us who do bad things and those of us who don't. And so I, I think that that really comes um, to the forefront a lot in my work. And, and I just think it's been something that's preoccupied me my whole life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Another thing that you said in that interview is that you um, are a confessional poet, but sometimes you confess for other people, which is an interesting way to say. And that made me think of the, there's a Jeffrey Dahmer poem in there. We're sort of... Um, That's on my list for today. Oh, okay. Um, but yeah, that, that lies like Connie Post asked, uh, what parts of yourself do you find when you write about dark subjects, parts you didn't know about yet? So that's kind of what you were talking about right there. Um, Yes, um, <laughs> I have to. I have to shout out to Connie Post. Do it again, Frankie. Do it again. <laughs> it's a little inside joke. <laughs> okay. um, so, you know, I don't feel that the dark parts of myself are hidden from me. I guess so. I, I don't know if I really discover dark parts of myself. I feel like I'm very aware of the dark parts of myself, and I go exploring there when mm -hmm. I'm writing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's how how it happens for me more. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, Kim Tedro, or Kim Tedro, I should say, from uh, Nebraska, she saw you read in Lincoln, apparently pretty recently. And she um, what asks uh, if you could read some of the poems that you couldn't read in the bookstore because it was family friendly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. I think when I was introduced at that bookstore, they read some of David's um, David St. John's blurb. And then I, in this bookstore, the place where we read was right next to the children's mm -hmm. area. Yeah. It, it's it like that for Rattle, Rattle's old reading, too. So now the, the chains are off and we can do whatever we want. Okay, that's <laughs> so right. There are no kids. My kids are, uh, it's almost a soundproof room. So, and they can't hear you because I have headphones. So, so you're good that way. <laughs> okay. Um, okay, well, let's see. Uh, why don't I start with, um, with Jeffrey, the Jeffrey Dahmer poem since you mentioned that. Yeah, yeah, great. And that was on my list, because uh, this is something I definitely would not read in front of children. Um, and so I, I've written, um, I've written a lot about about crime. I, I, I have several poems about true crime, and um, and this is one that is actually my favorite, one of my favorites, and it's on page forty-one. Ah, thanks. <laughs> the curator, Jeffrey Dahmer. Unable to conform his conduct to the requirements of law, killed 17 men and dismembered them. Sometimes he dissolved the pared flesh in acid and flushed it down the toilet. Other times he ate the hearts and livers, biceps, 
a portion of meaty thigh. The bones he pulverized and scattered or soaked in bleach to keep. When police searched his apartment, they said it was less crime scene than museum installation. Two skeletons, a scalp, and seven skulls. One man's head and genitalia preserved in acetone. In prison, he asked if forgiveness was even possible for him. The chaplain didn't hesitate. The Lord, he told him, makes no exceptions. Jeffrey Dahmer did not resist while the inmate with the metal bar bludgeoned him to death. He waited, patient on the prison's bathroom floor for God who gathers our shards, every splintered fragment into his boundless hands. And would you like another one that I didn't read in the bookstore? Yeah, sure. Okay, we'll stick with um, true crime, true crime for 100. Um, so this is page 63. And uh, this is also a persona poem where I'm definitely confessing somebody else's sin. Mm -hmm. And um, so I wrote a series of, of poems just just about they're just five they were really hard to work on and they were um about the the pedophile priest scandals of the catholic church and um and this is a poem um i, I did a lot of research and um many of the poems are based directly on um on case you know uh, cases that were laid out anonymously as far as the victims go but with the names of the priests attached to them in a, a wonderful book i read called sacrilege and, but this is a poem that is in um, the imagined voice of a pedophile priest. Uh, and I want to say I wrote it in part because it has occurred to me over the years that I really feel the Catholic Church, um, the hierarchy, way up at the top, that there's some way in which they condone the priests being able to do whatever they want to mm -hmm. children. Because this is not a group of people that is shy about... Um, you know, casting people out of their flock or, um, or you know, casting judgment on someone, passing judgment on someone. And yet when faced with, you know, all of, I mean, thousands of, of cases of pedophile priests, they've just done nothing except to make more children available to them. Mm -hmm. And so in thinking about that, um, I was trying to imagine what kind of a doctrinal idea a person might have in their head if um, they were a priest who thought it was okay for them to molest children. Did I already tell you page 63? Yep, yep, we're set. Okay. My body broken for you. After mass, I bid him kneel before me in the sacristy. As I have knelt so many times before the sculpted body of our Lord. He is in his Sunday best. Shoes his mother shined. Wine we shared left a rose on each cheek. He closes his eyes in prayer, his face as open as a question. I place my blessing hand on his head and pull aside my vestments. Oh, I am as firm as my convictions, hard as the unbeliever's heart. I turn to flesh in the furnace of his mouth. His neck is like porcelain as I bend over him, my body blooming from his throat's small vase. I am burning, burning. I want to bathe him in this cleansing hot stream, baptize myself in the pure flowing drops of his tears. Look at us. Look at us before you, Lord. We are bursting. We are flames. We are flowers. We are your holy, your broken, faithful children. That's a hard poem to read. I wouldn't want to read it at a bookstore either. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've read it at some bookstores, but not when we're in the children's mm -hmm. section. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I live in terror of being placed in the children's section. Mm -hmm. 
I tried to develop a clean set and then a not clean set. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's it's tough when the bookstores are getting smaller and smaller. There's not much distance. Yeah. <laughs> um, let me do another question. Uh, Kevin Lemaster says most of your poems were intimately raw. I appreciate your courage to write about what we have problems writing about those subjects. How long did it take you to fully explore these topics? Like, so I think he's talking about the priests poems like how long did you spend you said you said it was a difficult project to do but how long did it take and and how long how much were you consumed with it i guess i should say um you know i started it um i read an article in the newspaper i don't remember what year it was but it was um about uh the philadelphia i believe archdiocese and years into the crisis they still had to um to expunge from their their midst uh, 36 priests mm-hmm. and I thought, my god what took them so long and i ordered um about three books and decided i wanted to read about it because i just i just couldn't come to terms with the fact that the catholic church could not set limits with their priests and so um that book i mentioned sacrilege um, by leon j Podels, um it it was shattering to read and it probably took me I don't know, a few months just to read it. I could only read it a, a little bit at a time because the the Catholic Church is far more depraved than anybody can imagine. And when I started sending so and so I read the I read the book and then I worked on the poems probably just I think I just lasted a few months. Um I had in mind maybe even writing a whole manuscript based on um on the Catholic Church mm-hmm. and sins but i I really i couldn't i just couldn't keep i couldn't stay in it any longer um and that i really recommend reading that book sacrilege um when i started sending out the poems um and and started showing them to people uh, like i showed them in a workshop and a woman said i really needed to do some research because this just didn't ring true Mm -hmm. and i had a hard time placing them Uh, they finally were all all five published in pink Mm -hmm back when Roxane Gay was there. And by then I had realized I needed to um, add a note. Um, And so I added a note mentioning the book and the specific priests that the poems uh, were based on, you know, the, the, um, the cases. Yeah. 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 Those were really hard poems to write. Um, I know I, uh, one of the things when I interviewed you for rattle uh, back in the day, you didn't talk, we didn't talk much at all about, about religion or God. Um, and one of the things I thought was interesting, you, you, there's a poem in the book that says, Father sends me to the room where he keeps the church snakes, is one of the beginning lines. Um, what, what, did you grow up in a church? Um, and was it a church that had snakes? <laughs> well, that, that poem is a persona poem. Is it? Okay. And, um, and um, I'll, I'll read that, but I'll, I'll tell you. Um, so I did not really grow up in church. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up, so the most church I had is that, um, I used to live in Idaho Falls. We lived there for about four years and we had some neighbors behind us and, um, the two couples would gather the children together and they would drop us off at a Methodist Sunday school while they all went out to breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> and so that was, that was probably the extent of my religious training. Mm-hmm. I was going to, um, you know, here and there going to uh, Sunday school at a Methodist church in Idaho Falls. Ah, okay. Cause, I, cause there's a lot, I know you have, um, snakes, um, pet snakes, right? Or at least oh, I've had a lot of snakes. Yeah. Yeah. Snakes I've had a lot of, just not so much. Religion. And there's a lot of really religious, you know, interesting religious iconography in this book about snakes too. Um, so I just thought that was sort of a really interesting sort of channel that somehow we talked for like two hours and that never came up. Um, so I'm kind of curious about it. You know, there were snakes in the house when you were I here. know, and I don't like that. The, the one thing that I don't like are snakes. That there's that whole, um, you know, epigenetic memory. Like one of my ancestors must have gotten bitten pretty bad or something. Because <laughs> I dream, I sleepwalk, and I dream that there's snakes under my bed, like, all the time. Oh, my God. <laughs> so uh, I'm always, like, jumping up and, like, smashing a snake. So you don't want me to, to spend the night at your house, that's for no. sure. No, well, there aren't any snakes here now. Oh, that, that's good. Um, okay. There used to be a lot of snakes here. My son was really, really interested in mm-hmm. reptiles. Uh, mm-hmm. um, well, do you want to read some more and maybe maybe tie that tie that weird tangent in? <laughs> yeah, so I will. I'll read. Um, I will read. Um, uh, so page twenty six, um, and this is the poem that you were just mentioning. It's called "Taking Up Serpents," and um, it's a persona poem. 
And I wrote it because I read this, this amazing article about a Pentecostal preacher who loved to handle venomous snakes mm -hmm. as a way to test his faith. And um, he had been bitten finally on the ninth bite. He finally succumbed oh, wow. to death. He lay down on his couch and he refused treatment and he died. And, and I started to wonder what it might have been like to have been his daughter. And I don't know if he even had a daughter, um, but this poem is written in her imagined voice. Taking up serpents. Sometimes my father sends me to the room where he keeps the church snakes. Who knows I'm afraid. I don't set a foot in till the lights come up bright. Once a snake got loose and had to be caught. It coiled in the middle of the room, shocking as when I broke free of puberty. Snakes have no ears, but they feel you coming from way off. Before I get a hand at the knob, they're ready, rattles, rasping. Hairs rise up all along my skin. It's what happens when boys look at me now. New tongues speak in my body. Sometimes I writhe, a belly crawler, a tree branch grown crooked. My father doesn't look right at me anymore. Not since the devil slithered into me and set up shop. Snakes, he looks in the eye, holding each scaled body high with both hands. Whenever one strikes him, prayers fly. I've heard venom makes your heart race, splits your skin wide. I could read you more snake poems, Tim, but it might be traumatic for you. <laughs> well, I, I just read them all, so um, so I'm already I'm already know what I'm going to be dreaming about tonight. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, that's okay. That's okay. I need to get it's exposure therapy. So I really need to go to the um, you know snake. There's a there's a forever wild animal sanctuary down the hill in the desert. I need to go there and pet a couple. I think you you, you should have you know if you had mentioned it when you were here. No, I no I'm, I. I'm going to help you out. <laughs> yeah, no thanks. <laughs> I know I don't. I used to be afraid of snakes when I was a little girl, mm -hmm. but not anymore. Yeah, well, it's one of the fundamental you know fears, like the you know the dragon is a you know part snake and you know there's the the things that that hunted us <laughs> when we were little little apes you know so it kind of makes sense that's what i tell myself anyway well no i've read that um that some uh some scientists think that we're actually hardwired to be afraid of snakes mm -hmm. because of the fact that our ancestors lived in places where if you weren't afraid of snakes you, mm -hmm. you would be yeah well um, I, there were so many venomous snakes yeah i've actually i think that um i don't know how how you know confirmed the science is but there's one whole strain of science that argues that uh snakes are the reason we developed the the kind of um precise vision that we have just so we can see through their camouflage and it was literally like living with snakes and having to see them in the woods that let us have the eyes that we do that allows us to read poetry so thank you snakes to uh <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you know, like like other animals, if they're looking at a page, they can't see words, they can't see text because they don't have that kind of detail in their vision. And um, supposedly, it's thanks to snakes. So we evolved, yeah. we co-evolved with them, apparently. Yes, <laughs> that's, I, that's wonderful. Now I have one more reason. Well, there you to... go. But but Kevin the master is right there with me. So Kevin does not like snakes either. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um... <clears throat> There have been times when we've had people stay at our house when we used to have a lot of snakes and we had to move them all um, into one room so that people wouldn't be exposed to mm -hmm. them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Let's let's change the subject and, and read some more. Let's read some more poems. <laughs> okay. Um, well, I, now, now I'm worried about... I won't read any more snake poems. Um, um, so I, I'm going to read a poem uh, that's for my cousin... And um, and he's um, he's a person. He's one of the people I admire most in the world. Um, he he's it's page twenty four, and um, he's a person who had a, a difficult start in his life, and he ended up um, serving fifteen years in prison for murder. And he he got out of prison, and he's made a good life for himself. And I have deep love for him and, um, and admiration. 
And so I'm going to read this poem for him. And one thing that I didn't know until I had a close family member in prison is that some prisons allow you to send care packages in. So um, we were allowed to send um, packages that had clothing um, into, into him, I think, quarterly. Yeah, so this is, this is what that, uh, that is what this poem came from. Sending underwear to prison. Rocking the bawling reminder of another night's work. Your mother didn't consider whether cloth or disposable was better. Or think while you cried that baby wipes might be drying. She worried instead that her pimp would pull the trigger when he put his gun to your wailing head, ordering, shut this child up or I'll do it for you. Which caused her to wonder if liquor or heroin could calm a baby quicker and when nothing worked, hand you over to the state. To get at your rage, to strip away your smiling, understand why you killed a man for touching you between the legs you have to go back to that baby, the whole world chafing you like a stillus. When I shop for your clothes, I choose your underthings carefully, reaching to check how they feel from the inside. I only send the softest underwear to prison. I want to teach you tenderness the way a baby learns it, through the skin. Okay, so should I keep reading or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why don't you read a, a, a couple more? Okay. Um, so I'll read a couple about complicity. Um, it's another, this is page 84, Tim. Okay. And um, complicity is another favorite topic of mine <clears throat> because I think, frankly, um, that all of us are complicit in basically everything. Mm-hmm. And that we delude ourselves when we draw lines um, so starkly in the sand, you know, between good and bad. And um, so I, I spend a lot of time in my poetry exploring complicity, um, uh, both my own and that of others. Souvenir. He told me in the back seat of the Camaro his enlistment bonus bought, how the plane disgorged him in the warm night over the island. How orders are like parachutes, what you count on to bring you safely home. How he followed his into the jungle to where a man bent over a cooking fire, face soft in that small light, but softer still when my friend searched him after leaning hard on his sniper's training to gauge distance and windage and gravity's complicating pull. And then to open a bullet-sized door in that stranger's chest. My shirt was soaked from our crying by the time he finished and reached into his coat, saying, look what I brought you, a grenade from Grenada, then closed his eyes and pulled the pin. For the longest time, as cold seeped in, he held the striker lever and I held him, his breath in fragments, my hands slick on his shorn skin. I have a note to myself in the book to explain about the striker lever Mm -hmm. um, because I I showed this um, to an editor once and this poem and she said that, that there's something wrong in the poem. It's not factually correct because once you pull the pin, the grenade will explode. Mm-hmm. But, um, you might know this, Tim, but um, but some people don't. That when you pull the pin out of a grenade, if you keep holding the striker lever, you could hold it all night and you could put the pin back in, mm-hmm. um, which is what happened. Um, this is an autobiographical poem. And, um, and so my friend uh, put the pin back in um, and thus I uh-huh. was able to write the poem. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, so I like I do like to explain that. Yeah, that is a chilling, chilling poem, though. Um, it was a chilling, a chilling. Event. <laughs> I, I'm sure it was. See, it's interesting reading your book because there's some poems that I think, oh, this one's probably autobiographical, and I said, well, this one's not. <laughs> and I thought this one was not, 
Um, so I'm sort of sorry you had to go through that in real life. That's that's tough. You know, I was um, 16, mm-hmm. and I was um, I was too young to be as as afraid as I should have been. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I feel more afraid now. Mm-hmm. But I'm 52. <laughs> well, I feel afraid reading well, I don't reading know the poem. Right now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so, so should this be the last? Oh no, we have a little bit more time. Um, let me let me interrupt you one more time. And uh, Amy Miller's here, uh, who who uh, we read a poem of hers at the in the prologue of the pre-show. She says, uh, "Could you talk about your family's reaction to your work? And do you write any of your poems by them, or let them know the work is coming out in the world?" Um, so that's a good question, actually. Thanks for that, Amy. Uh, do you do you? Um, what does your family think? You you mentioned that they might be watching uh, live right now. Well, my parents are watching, uh-huh. and um, so uh, it's kind of a hard question. Um, so first, I will say I do not run my poems by anyone before I publish them. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I remember asking Ellen Bass um, a, a long time ago what she does about that, because she writes a lot of poems that I think we can assume are pretty autobiographical. And she said that she actually, she writes a poem about anyone, even her next door neighbor. She shows it to them and asks their permission mm-hmm. to publish it. And, and I, I, I think, you know, I, I took that under advisement after I asked her and I decided I didn't want to do that, that um, I, I don't want to place myself in a position of asking someone permission mm-hmm. uh, to write my poems or to publish them. Yeah. Well, I can see how knowing you would have to do that completely changes the way you would write, you know, which yeah. which would kind of, um, I don't know. I mean, there's there's no way to get around self-censoring, um, knowing that you're going to have to sit there, which is probably why Alan, you know, does it that way. But um, that would be a real, real hard, you know, hard thing to do, I think. Yes, yeah, so I, I don't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my, my family's reaction, um, my parents have been amazing. I, I'm sure that they now know more about their daughter than they ever, ever wanted to know. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think it's hard on my kids. And, um, and I mean, not hard like I think they're suffering, but I think, like, I think I can, I can be embarrassing or jarring to have as a parent. Um, and I try to tell them, and I mean, anyone that knows me personally, that, you know, they don't have to read my work. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's my work and I'm going to write it yeah, and publish it. Yeah. Um, and I do, I try hard, especially with my children to not publish, um, you know, things I try to, I try to write my own stories. Mm-hmm. So if I write something that involves them, it usually is, it's, it's about parenting them. Yeah. You know, I'm not trying to write their story and, um, and, and, my husband said that it was hard to be my husband, but he thought it must be really hard to be my children. <laughs> um, you know, people have said that before, and I've always felt like, I don't, I don't know, maybe it's just me personally, but if my parents were, you know, had written poems, I would love that, especially, you know, maybe not as a teenager, but but going back to that topic of um, what's taboo and what's unspoken, like poems about the things that you really wish you knew about your parents that we're... Um, like you said, we're too polite to talk about. <laughs> so I, I wish I knew what my, my father thought about a whole bunch of things. And I'll never probably know because we'll never have those conversations. And, and my mother, too. So um, I think they'll, I mean, I don't know. I can imagine really easily that they would appreciate it later in life. That's kind of, I don't know, that's how I think of it anyway. Well, yeah, and I feel like they're proud of me. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and I feel that they're supportive um, but I think I, I'm sure that it makes them uncomfortable, you know, like to read about their mother's um, previous lovers, for instance. Mm-hmm. That would be something that would probably <laughs> make them want to throw up in their mouths right now. <laughs> um, and maybe when they're older, they, you know, mm-hmm. then they'll be glad to have the information. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, yeah. but so far, not so much. But I, I just, you know, I just decided um, when I, you know, back when I really started to become serious about sending my work out, you know, I mean, you guys were the first to know when I was serious about sending my work out. Mm-hmm. Back then, I just decided that um, I've, I'm a person, I've, I've really given much of my life over to raising my kids, and that this is going to be um, one thing that's just going to be mine. Mm-hmm. And so I, I don't ask people permission. 
And um, yeah. Yeah, I think that's a great way to look at it. And, you know, another thing that successful poetry always is, is honest, you know, and, yeah. and there's sort of a right to honesty that we really need to have. I think it's fundamental to like our being as autonomous individuals that we need to have the right to be honest with ourselves. And, you know, you have to sort of reserve a right and, and draw a line somewhere. So um, so I, I like that you do that. I think there's also um, an element that I, I really appreciate about my parents Um especially that I feel like with my parents and with me toward them also that we allow ourselves to be um, humans first and, you know, people first. And then there's the relationship, you know, like I, I feel like um, they accept me as being, uh, you know, a full, a, a full human being, mm-hmm. not just that I'm their daughter. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I, I feel that way about my children and I hope that, you know, they will feel that way about me as they go further into adulthood and, and I think that is something that, you know, that poetry can can do for people is to grant us our full humanity. Mm-hmm. And it, it's because of what you're saying about the honesty and the, the truth. Yeah, yeah. I think that's what poetry does is allows us to be more human. And that's why it's a valuable thing to, that's why I do what I do. Um, yeah. um, well, we have a time for maybe like two more poems if you want to, if you have two more you want to read. I'm sure. Uh, let me see. Um I only had one more picked out, so. Oh, that's okay. If you only want to do one more, that's fine too. But no, not that I, I mean, I, I could, I could read all night. <laughs> okay. I'm a poet. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, I, I'm going to read. Um, I'm sorry, Tim, but I'm going to read one more snake poem. That's okay. I'll, I'll, I'll hug her down. Yeah, I exaggerate. I, I'm not that scared of snakes. I just prefer <laughs> not to have them under my bed while I sleep. Is all. So. <laughs> Okay, so um, I'll read this and then I'll close with one more poem about complicity. Okay. And this is on page 15. Okay. And um, I like to tell people that when you own snakes, you generally feed them frozen mice or rats, depending on the size of the snake. Um, If you have a really big snake, you might feed them a frozen rabbit. (laughs) But um, this is um, about feeding a snake a frozen mouse. And when you're doing that, you have to thaw it first and warm it up a bit or else the snake won't take it because Mm -hmm. they're used to live prey. Okay. As if God. Little mouse, lying white on your side like a child in a christening dress. I've thawed and placed you to wait on the flat rock altar. But snake isn't interested. He sniffs once, tongue flickering like flame, then slides back into the shavings concealed again. It's as if we prayed and God did not come, or came but turned his face away, refusing to take the child's whole spirit deep into his devouring shape and free it, as each mouse released by generous jaw and steady squeeze is freed into the great gliding goodness of snake. I'm glad you read that one because that's such a great poem about religion. Um, and I don't know, I just, I love that metaphor. What is your, since we didn't talk about it in our uh, interview in Rattle, and, and it's the one question that I love, you know, I want to know everybody's like thoughts about this, but what is your sort of cosmology of religion? And what do you think, why are we here? Like, do you, do you go to church? Do, do you believe, um, those stories, do you, how do you, how do you place yourself within the nature of reality? And we have like 30 <laughs> seconds. So go. Well, in 30 seconds. <laughs> yeah. Okay. yeah. Um, and thir- well, I'm just kidding I, about the 30 seconds. You I can take as much in- time as you want. <laughs> I believe in God. Uh-huh. I believe also at the same time with as much fervor that um, human beings are not developed enough to understand God. Mm-hmm. So I don't believe in uh, organized religions. Yeah generally, maybe at all. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, and I think that, I think when people organize themselves into groups of any kind, uh, we do great harm. Mm -hmm. And um, and maybe small groups, we can still be decent people, but when we're in large groups, then we become, you know, the us and the them. Yeah. And so I think religion does a lot of that 
organized religion. I think organized religion has been terrible for women mm-hmm. um, in particular. Yeah. But um, I do believe in God. Mm-hmm. I don't believe I understand God. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was a great answer. I think that was actually 30 seconds. That was kind of amazing. Yeah. So, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> See, there is a God, Tim. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I've, I've always wanted to know. <laughs> um, okay, so I'm going to close with a poem um, that is um, about, I say it's about love and complicity. And um, and I want to dedicate it to uh, a boy named Kurt. And you'll understand who that is once I read the poem. Okay. And it's on page 70. Okay, thanks. At a Sausalito gallery, Javier reads his poems of darkness and lost kisses. Besos, he says, explaining how the literal translation is kisses, but besos are different. I ask what's missing for him in kisses, and he says the Spanish, making me think of Spanish conjugation. It's preterite tense, where an action has a clear end, and the imperfect, where an action keeps on. Like my first kiss, as I lay in the back of a dirty van, and a boy loosed his tongue in my mouth, and my tongue, no longer innocent, leapt like an animal from its cave, my lips opening wide in snarling contact with every bit of his mouth, discovering nerves in my tongue were hot-wired down my body's long center to those mysterious lips below, clenching and slickening as we kissed. He tasted of rum and sweat, and I tangled my bitten to the quick fingernails and his dark curls and held on as our mouths swelled and bruised. I never kissed him again, but stood quietly a few weeks later as he was beaten at our bus stop, his sweet, surprised face kicked by another boy's boot. A group of us watched as blood seeped from his nose and mouth. When he lay limp and still, we and that other boy walked away, and I failed to recognize how a moment could continue, like the Spanish imperfect. And what later turned up missing for me and kisses was not ever a language, but the taste of rum lingering like memory in someone's mouth and a body laid out unable to resist. Francesca Bell, thanks so much for joining us on the uh, episode 15 of the Rattlecast. It was really wonderful reading. Thanks. Uh... Thank you so much for having yeah. me, Tim. Yeah. And thank you for all you do for poetry. Oh, it's just my pleasure. This is just fun for me. I have a job that all I do is have fun all day. So uh, that's nice. <laughs> well, we're all grateful for you. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, and yeah, we'll have to have you on for your... Oh, the other thing I wanted to ask before we get... You, you mentioned the interview, which I totally forgot, that you have another book manuscript that's like not as dark you said in the interview is that is that forthcoming anywhere is is um it's not forthcoming no? anywhere um i have the poems together mm-hmm. and i'm gonna work i wanted to wait until i was done with my book tour yeah which yeah that makes sense about three weeks and then i'm going to um put uh, put the poems in order mm-hmm. and um and then i'm going to cross my fingers and turn it in mm-hmm. to kate Hale, awesome um, my wonderful editor mm-hmm. and um Pray to God that Red Hen wants to keep it. Well, I was hoping Red Press would do the second one. And that's a good segue because Red Hen Press will definitely do it if everybody listening to this podcast buys a copy right now. (laughs) (laughs) So so pick up a copy at redhen.org. And um, and we're also, if you're in L.A., uh, take a class from – I totally forgot to talk about this or even think about this, but uh, in just uh, 10 days or so, uh, you're coming down to LA, and we're doing a class and reading at the uh, at Red Hen Press's office, um, along yes, with AM Jester. Awesome. So, uh, if you're in LA, come on out and uh, see Francesca in person. Um, yes, and, and and learn. I think there are like two slots open for each class. I think we're we uh, capped it at 15. I think there's like 13 signed up each. So uh, you might be able to squeeze into Francesca's class too before the reading. But then there's a free public reading afterwards. So stop on by. Um, But thanks again, Francesca Bell. Um, So great to see you. And uh, we'll have to have you on again sometime with the next book. Okay. Thank you so much. Thanks. Good night, everyone. Good night.
so that was the uh, Francesca Bell. Um, everybody, thanks so much. I uh, hope you enjoyed that. If you did, please click the uh, like button if you're listening later on iTunes. Give it five stars, all that good stuff. If you're watching on Facebook, share it. That's the best thing you can do on Facebook, but also give it hearts and stuff. Because your interactions are based on um, or, or how uh, poetry or anything spreads around the Internet. So you can spread joy, you can spread anger. And uh, we like to spread joy and poetry and a, um, a window on the complexities of the human experience. Um, so now we're going to do – this is a sort of new transition where um, – Everybody who would like to call it, a few people um, Skyped and messaged me saying they'd like to call it on the open mic. We're going to have room for everybody because I'm going to do a hard break. We're going to throw up the splash screen and some music, and I will get everything lined up, and then we'll do the open mics in just a little bit. So hang on um, if you're watching live and join in on the open mic. I have four people lined up um, on the pre-recorded. I have uh, three people who said they'd like to call in, and we'll do that in just a little bit. But first of all, let's see. Next week on the Rattlecast, we have Lynn Knight, um, another Rattle legend, and, and it's sort of a similar way that Francesca Bell is a Rattle legend. Lynn Knight was the winner of the 2009 Rattle Poetry Prize, and she's been published in Rattle, I think, more than anybody else. Her newest book coming up is The Language of Forgetting. And um, so tune in next week at um, the same time, and uh, we'll, we'll talk to Lynn Knight. But for now, I'm going to take a little tiny break, grab a beverage or, you know, whatever you need to do, get comfortable again. And if you're watching on the video, uh, join me again for the open mic in just a little bit. If you're watching on iTunes or listening that way in your car, I will just see you later and hope you have a great night. Bye.